0: Thank you for being with us in a series that we've been in now for, this is the last of six weeks. When this series developed, it sort of evolved as we developed it. We were dealing with a series in Second Corinthians 5 on why do we do what we do? Why do we make the choices we did? And it was based on Paul's apologetic, Paul's defense of why he lived the life that he did. And that passage, probably more than any other passage in the Pauline letters, describes then why Paul lived the way he did in the world, this world, why he made his decisions the way he did but somewhere what had happened in that very first night we did a brief excursus a rabbit trail okay and the whole series followed the rabbit we said if the rabbit got big we were going to kill it okay and uh, we sounded a little cruel but uh, we wouldn't chase this rabbit far Oh, that thing ate too much. It got big, and it just kept running, all right? But uh, we were spurred to follow a series or develop it, then uh, dealing more then uh, because of a lot of the input we received from you to deal with matters then a relative to our culture and the world in which we live. And Don did one of the presentations on that, for instance, in our world, our apologetics. We have about 35 minutes, and I have 12 pages. Now, I've taken three pages and done a whole lot longer. We'll see what we can do. Here's a modern parable for you. If you'd follow along, I will read it. It's a parable, and it begins this way. It has been a long flight to the capital, and you are anxious because you do not know the agenda for the meeting. All you know is that he wants to see you personally. Although you are in regular communication, he has not made this kind of invitation before, so you sense that some, something is afoot. The journey has given you the opportunity to reflect on all that has happened since you were given the position in Materialista. For many years, it was thought to be one of the best jobs, offering a warm climate, delightful people, with a respect for teachers, doctors, the police, and even attorneys, not to mention folks like you have been given important assignments. Materialista is a prosperous place, and your mission there has been quite successful. You arrive early, wait nervously, until on time you are ushered into a magnificent office. You have seen it in pictures many times, but being here is different. It is good to see you, my friend, he says. You have been doing a fine job for us in Materialista. It is a delightful place to serve, sir, you reply. The people hold you in high regard, and I have been well received. There is a great deal of goodwill with compliance. Yes, yes, he says. Of course, you must never confuse goodwill with compliance. Of course, sir. And there are many who dislike our policy, but at least they know what it is. And when their boats sail into the rocks, they know where to turn. Well, I've called you in because I have a new assignment for you, he says. As you know, the population of Materialista is dwindling. The birth rate has fallen, and a lot of people have emigrated. We need a strong presence where the people are, and so I want you to go and lead our enterprise among the booming population of postmodernia. Postmodernia, sir? Yes. Postmodernia. Millions of people have found it an attractive place to live, and though I can't think why, none of these people have ever visited our country, and most are completely ignorant of what we are doing. Where you have been working in the past, people recognized our government even if they ignored us. But in postmodernia, the people do not even know who we are. You will find the people very charming. They will receive you well. In fact, they receive everybody well irrespective of their assignment. When you explain our policies, you will find that they think these are fine for you because you come from this country but have nothing whatever to do with them because they live in postmodernia. But surely, sir, these people must know the high level of commitment we have to them and how much they depend on our aid. Without our exports, their food supply would be exhausted. Without our support, their entire economy would collapse. Very few are aware of these things, he says, the people of postmodernia live with the illusion that they are self-sufficient. His eyes narrow as he leans forward. This is a tough assignment. It has ended the careers of some of our best people. The last man we sent proved quite unreliable. We sent him out fully briefed on our policy. He did a marvelous job of engaging the people, he seemed very drawn to them. But over time we heard less and less from him and now he has broken off contact altogether. Whatever he is doing now, he is certainly not working for us. So now I am trusting this operation to you. I want you to do the same job you have been doing in Materialista. Represent us. Raise awareness of what we are saying and do everything you can to persuade the people of our cause. In other words, a modern parable about being an ambassador. In many ways, this modern-day parable represents the dilemma facing the church in a contemporary society in the midst of all this cultural change that we've been talking about. And like the ambassador in this parable that we just read, the church today is reassigned. You and I are out in new territory. Our mission and our message, by the way, has not changed. Okay. The times have changed, but the task has not. However, the world, as we've written here, in which we have been commanded to reach, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, is undergoing changes that affect every area of culture, every area, folks, of our society. And the world we are attempting to reach in 2009, 2010, and on to 2020 is very different from the world of 1970, 1960, 1980, and 1985. The world of our fathers and of our grandfathers. As we've written and said before, and as you notice, a new day has dawned, and notice the quote here. A new generation has come of age. The new generation then is post-Christian, post-enlightenment. They use the term, and we've been using it now for 20 years, post-modern. The church now is faced with a new challenge. The previous generation of church leaders responded to the rational, atheistic challenge of the claim that there is no God, but today it's not, is there a God, but rather, which God, okay? There's a plethora of religions being accepted. Right now in America, there are 1,570 different known religions in this country. Newsweek magazine in the ARIS survey, an acronym then for the American Research on Religion survey that was just done this spring, says that we are now a post-Christian nation for the first time in the history of the United States. The majority of the population in the United States of America do not feel that Christian principles anymore are the grounding principles of our nation, nor should they be of what we base our principles for life upon that's never been the case before in this country and it's a first for us and it has really reached into the heart of religious leaders in this nation saying what has happened and so it's been a rugged summer for a lot of reasons but the days ahead probably will even become more difficult not a surprise to God as a matter of fact it will get difficult Jesus even said that about when he does return I believe it's after the tribulation, but he says, When the Son of Man returns, will he what? Find faith on the earth. Something must happen that prepares that world to get to that destitute state. Okay? So, what makes the current cultural context somewhat unique is that the changes going on are occurring at a deeper and profound level than at any time before. And we've talked about and recall that postmodernism, and that's what we've been talking about. What is it and why is it that people think the way they do? Just as a review, to some respects, postmodernism entails the following four aspects. We said it is, in our world today, a prevailing mood. Rather than a distinct set of doctrines, you really cannot say these are what postmodernists believe. Postmodernism is best described as a mood, and the mood is characterized by a deep distrust of reason and a deep rejection of absolute truth. They believe that truth is constructed and subjective rather than objective and authoritative. In other words, we build truth. And not only that, but a methodology, but notice a philosophical movement, and then a penetrating cultural metamorphosis. It has been transforming and changing every area of life as its philosophy and its impact is spread through education, movies, media, technology. And the virtues of postmodernism are what? Tolerance and diversity. One of the folks in our study here each week as we've been going through this and over the last six weeks said, what you're talking about, our company has been experiencing. And we're talking companies in the research triangle. How many of you have been a part of a corporation where they have diversity training going on? Why, sure you have. And the HR, human resource people, then bring in specialists who train on diversity. All right? And so I am holding then one of the recent... Presentations that was just done in one of the companies in our area. IBM just did one uh, just a month ago, dealing with the Global Diversity Task Force presented to many of you, global village culture and diversity, talking about and this is the PowerPoint that was used in your company. So we didn't create the handout. This is what you saw just a couple of weeks ago where you work, and so I was given the slide presentation or the PowerPoint presentation. And it was then showed at the corporation Global Village. In other words, the GLBT is what its acronym is. stands for Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Culture and Diversity Training. That began then September 17th. Talking then on the next slide, dealing with then the basic terms, the definitions, and what do we call ourselves? Changes through time. We used to be referred to as homosexuals or gay and lesbians or two-spirited, and it goes on and on. Then it starts showing the pictures and the testimonies of early gay pioneers and transgender people. And so many of the And so some of the hot issues that you're going to face in our corporation are going to be marriage and civil union rights, employment, non-discrimination, hate crimes inclusion, military ideas of don't ask, don't tell, and partner immigration. So we're going to face that. Then here are the symbols, it says. There are now many gay, lesbian, bisexuals, and transgender communities, organizations, and here's a partial list, and then it goes on and talks about the different people. Now, five things never to say, and towards the end of this presentation that you saw at your company, five things never to say to a GLBT person. In other words, don't ever say to somebody who's gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender, referring to it as a, they don't want it to be called a sexual preference or a lifestyle, or calling a spouse or a significant other my roommate or your friend, or telling me, I don't ever want to hear such an expression as, quote, you love the sinner but hate the sin, unquote. And assume I am a hedonistic, faithless person or attributing broad societal issues to the GLBT community, such as child molestation or AIDS. And then it goes on and says, if you have any questions, come and see us. And so this is where we work, folks. Folks. This is our new world. And that's why Newsweek or Time says what? We are in a post-Christian nation. And years ago, the Christian community gave away or didn't fight, and we gave up the battle for or against abortion. And now we are seeing 18 states moving towards then what? Gay marriages. And the battle just keeps marching on. It's an interesting society we live in. And we have the popularity of books that are coming out. For instance, Christopher Hitchens. Recent publication that's been out now two years, and it was a New York Times bestseller. And Christopher Hitchens just was in the latest Newsweek magazine. I don't know how many of you do get Newsweek. Christopher Hitchens is a writer there, and he takes on any issue. And he just took on President Obama winning the Nobel Peace Prize. And so Hitchens says, why? And so here is this outspoken American atheist who travels the country lecturing for the new atheism against Christianity, but he even takes on President Obama receiving a Nobel Peace Prize saying it was undeserved. And he wrote a three-page article in Newsweek magazine. Talk about guts, all right? But he did it. But I want to read something from Hitchens' book on God is Not Great. And it starts out on the cover. Have any of you read the book? It was at Borders or Barnes & Noble. It was a popular, for many, many months, it was on New York Times bestseller, God is Big, God, then the word is, is smaller, not gets smaller, and great is in real fine print. God is not great. Listen to what Hitchens says. He says, there are four irreducible objections to religious faith. And he starts out saying, because religious faith misrepresents the origin of man, and ultimately it's grounded on wish-thinking, And then he goes on to say, and I don't want to get into his arguments, but he says this, I am morally certain that millions of other people have come to very similar conclusions as I have. He says this, And I have met many of them. Many of them never believed, and many of them abandoned the faith after a difficult struggle. Some of them had blinding moments of unconviction that were every bit as instantaneous, though perhaps less epileptic, than Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. But here is the point of myself and my co-workers. We do not rely upon science and reason because they are necessary rather than sufficient factors, but we distrust anything that contradicts science or outrages reason. We are not immune to the lure of wonder and mystery and awe. In other words, we think about the metaphysical other world. We have music and art and literature... And we atheists find that the serious ethical dilemmas are better handled by people like Shakespeare and Tolstoy and Schiller and Dostoevsky and George Eliot than any in the mythical morality tales of the holy books such as the Bible. Literature, not Scripture, sustains the mind and also the soul. We do not believe in a heaven and a hell, Yet no statistic will ever find that without these blandishments and threats, we commit more crimes of greed or violence than the faithful. We are reconciled to living only once, except through our children, for whom we are perfectly happy to notice that we must make way and room. In other words, that's why we believe in euthanasia. The old people need to get out of the way, he writes in his book. We speculate that it is at least possible that once people accepted the fact of their short and struggling lives, they might behave better toward each other and not worse. We believe with certainty that an ethical life can be lived without any religion. More important of all, perhaps we infidels do not need any machinery of reinforcement. There is no need for us to gather every day or every seven days or on any high and auspicious day to proclaim our rectitude or to grovel and wallow in our unworthiness, we atheists do not require any priests or any hierarchy to police our doctrine, including objects in the form of one of man's most useful innovations, the bound book. He goes on to say this, and this is why I'm quoting him. Religion, he says, is man-made. This is out of his book. Even the men who made it cannot agree on what their prophets and redeemers or gurus actually said. Still less can they hope to tell us meaning. And yet, you will meet believers, Bible believers, who still claim to know. Then he has an exclamation point. Not just to know, but they think they know everything. Not just to know that God exists and that He created and supervised the whole enterprise around us, but also to know and to think of what He demands of us. Here's the sentence. The person who is certain and who claims divine warrant for his certainties belongs now in the infancy of our species. It has taken a long time to get to the farewell, but these people now need to be bidded farewell, and the farewell should not be protracted. Do you feel the punch in the belly that he is saying to us? What are Hitchens and others advocating of people like you and me? What? Do away with them. Those are kind of fighting words, and that was a Times, New York Times, bestseller for over 25 weeks. And a lot of people in our culture have drunk in upon that. The new world. America is in a post-Christian world. Kind of frightening, but notice on page 3, if you would. Postmodern thinking surrounds us, and while the dangers are many, the gravest danger presented by the world is a radically altered view of truth. Since Christianity is not just a nice set of ideas of theological concepts, but rather fundamentally grounded in truth, God is truth, and the view of truth offered has profound ramifications, we're talking about the person of Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. If the Christian message is relevant and if God has not left himself without a witness, then there is hope for finding ways of breaking the blinding ideology of our culture. In other words, there is reason to think that there are ways to get a hearing for the gospel in the postmodern and post-postmodern world. Folks, I believe even though there are people shouting from the rooftops that there is no God or there are many gods and take the one, or that may be true for you, but it's not true for me, and people make those claims, none of the day in which we live is ever surprising Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And all Scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man, the woman of God, may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We have answers. Amen? And we need not be ashamed. Now, what Paul will talk about in 2 Corinthians 5, and you cannot build a whole theology on subjectivity, but Paul knew who Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus was. And he experienced, as it were, a cataclysmic change one day on the road to Damascus. Changed his life. There's not a person sitting here who is not born again, who does not know what the old one was like. And Jesus changed our lives. In other words, it's real. The promises, the truths, and the Word of God, when they are accepted and believed, are life-transforming. I know I've experienced them. So have you. Now, we need to convince people that Christ is the answer. He not only can save your soul, He can change and alter your life and give you an entirely new trajectory on why we make the choices, why we live the life we do. He can set us on a new path. All right? And so, you and I have right answers. As mentioned previously, thinking people still think. And they have questions they think about, whether they openly admit it or not. At some time everyone ponders worldview level questions. In other words, the deep questions of life. Sometime even when we're all alone, or sitting in a car, or driving, or sitting on a beach, or in a tree stand, hunting, or shooting pictures, or out watching one of your kids in a soccer game, and you're standing off to the side, daydreaming, and your wife says, What are you thinking about? Or your husband says, What are you thinking about? Occasionally, our minds then run into those deep questions, such as, what is prime reality? In other words, the real, real. Asking the question, is there a God? What is the nature? In other words, where am I? What is this all about? What is a human being? Where did I come from? What happens when my mother, my father, my grandfather, my children, my grandchildren, when they die, where do we go? Why is it possible to know anything at all? How do I know truth? Is there such a thing as truth? And so Pilate will ask Jesus what question? What is truth? People have been asking that question. Not only that, but how do we know right from wrong? If we leave it up to Hitchens and others like him, it doesn't make any difference. We can ask Shakespeare or Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or Schiller or Eliot. And they will tell us truth. I have a problem with that. Those men are seeing darkly, all right? They're natural men. And since the fall, we all see that way. What is the meaning then of human history? To those questions, we have answers. Why? We know the God who has given us the answers. Before we attempt to offer answers, we need to take note that no one can proceed without making some assumptions about the nature of God or the nature of people and the role of this apologetics, defending the faith. And Here are some matters that I assume to be relatively uncontroversial among us as Bible believers. Now, by the way, I don't believe they're assumed to be true among contemporary culture. In other words, this. You and I have an assumption about God as ultimate reality. There is a God. He has spoken. This God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. In other words, all-knowing, all-powerful everywhere. And He's good. And so when people ask, why is there evil and why is there suffering? As if there's an evil God who created and caused it. No, God has a great purpose for what He is doing. He is sovereign. More than that, that this God made this world, and that means that the world itself is intelligible. He can speak to us. Come, let us reason together. We also know some things about human beings. God made humans in His image, and this includes moral and intellectual capabilities capacities. Human beings, though, are fallen, and every aspect of their nature, including human reason, has been marred by the results of sin. And this means that our capacity to know or discern or judge accurately sometimes cannot be trusted. It doesn't mean that people go out and commit the most heinous sins all the time. It simply means that when it comes to deep mist matters about the spiritual world, our home human nature cannot be trusted. While we still are able to use our minds, and much of what we understand is true. We are liable to make mistakes in thinking, do not know it. In any case, human reason is not the final answer. Assumptions about God. God has not left us to determine our own truth for tough issues of life. He has spoken. Not only that, He's been here. And our job, then as apologists or defenders or ambassadors, is to show this faith. Now, notice, these assumptions are the reasons for us why we should expect people to be able to grasp the truth of the gospel. The point is, if Christianity is true, and we believe it is, then we know some things about people that they do not know about themselves. That's probably the most important statement we'll be making here. We know that they were made for fellowship with God. We also know that they're alienated from God. And we know that Christ has provided the foundation for their reconciliation to God. And we know that God wants them to return to Him and He woos them to Him. And all this gives us a confidence that we are not butting our soft heads against a hard wall. And so our formula for our mission goes something like this. People want answers to their needs We have answers to meet those needs, and so we can practice the defense of the gospel, apologetics, unapologetically. We can defend what God has revealed to us. How good of an apologist, a defender of our faith, do you want to become? By definition, apologists defend the faith. They they defeat false ideas. They destroy speculations raised up against the knowledge of God. And by the way, folks, those sound like fighting words to many people. In other words, circle the wagons, hoist the drawbridge, fix the bayonets, load the weapons, ready, aim, fire. It's not surprising, then, that believers and unbelievers alike associate apologetics with conflict because defenders don't dialogue, they do what? They're fighters. Well, in addition to an image problem, faith defenders deface another barrier. And that's why, the way, Paul defended the faith, and usually when I think of the Apostle Paul, how do you picture him when you think of Paul? I get this little metaphor running around in my mind. I think of I think of Paul going through a busy harbor, you know, in the harbor of life, and here he comes, his little battleship, just out of my way. See? Firing off both sides. That's kind of how Paul said He thought of himself. Well, that was before the battleship days, okay? But Paul then writes and he says, you know that when I'm with you, I'm not quite the way I may sound in my letters, okay? He says, and I don't want to come across that way, but we've got important matters we have to deal with and there's an enemy running around among us and we need to deal with him. So we're not wasting time. Let's get down to the serious stuff. And so he says, my letters are written that way. Praise God. Okay? And that's how he wrote. And he talks like that. But notice, in addition to an image problem, faith defenders face another barrier. The truth is that effective apologetics or defense of Christianity in a twenty first century requires more than having the right answers. We said that living in a postmodern world, truth is found and seen in a community. And long ago probably the most profound and impacting community God himself created. It's called a what? The local church. In the future, Jesus Christ will be here on earth in the eschaton in the millennial kingdom. He will rule and reign for a thousand years. We will get to rule and reign with him i 'm looking forward to that day i 've put my request in and asked him many times i don 't want to be the mayor of Cleveland, please god okay but and i don 't know where we will rule and reign but i 've there's some places I do not want to go okay but now they do have a fine school and music programs, but apart from that, there are a couple of other steel cities along the steel belt but Anyway, he's going to make the rough places plain and straighten some things out. And so maybe some parts of the Midwest won't be so bad after all. After all, I come from there. And so doesn't your mind think about those things? Okay. A lot of strange things going on in mind when I'm driving a car, all right? <laughs> but <laughs> point is, is in the millennium, he will be here. He will rule and reign. And our world as we know it will be drastically different. He will be Lord and He will be recognized for His lordship, kingship. He is not ruling today. The kingdom is not here. There's a whole movement even within dispensationalism that talks about the kingdom has been inaugurated, just not yet consummated. And Jesus is standing on the right hand of God based on Psalm 110, another passage, that he is ruling there in a co-regency from the right hand of God. The problem I have with that, in Revelation 19, he comes back dressed as a warring conqueror. Today, he is standing in heaven Revelation chapter 1. The gowns he wears in heaven today, Revelation 1 describes, are the gowns of the high priest described in Exodus 33. Jesus is in heaven today as our what? Priest. Doing what? Romans 8. Making intercession for us. And so he's a priest. In the future, he's going to change his clothes. And he's going to come back as a conquering king. And then he'll rule and reign in righteousness and set up his kingdom. And when he is present, things will be different. And when he is ruling and reigning and people submit to his authority as Lord, we live in a world of a theocracy and harmony. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we are in the church age. We are not in eschatology, we are in ecclesiology. And what the local church this is to be is to be, as it were, a mini-expression to our world. Since you received Jesus as your Savior, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the what? Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But what is he called? The what? He is our Savior and Lord. He should be ruling and reigning in our heart. The purpose of the local church is to show in every local community A visible expression, a visible manifestation of the future eschaton, the millennium, when Christ is ruling and reigning. What a great life and world when Christ rules and reigns. And in a local church, we are to manifest, as it were, a preview of the kingdom. Church isn't the kingdom. It's a preview of Christ's ruling and reigning power and lordship to change lives. Does that make sense? In other words, every local church is a mini-expression. We could call it a kingdom kingdom hall. That would not work, all right? <laughs> but you understand what I'm talking about? It's to manifest life-changing power. And somehow, we've turned it around that it's my local group. Or as we said, it's all about, it's not all about me. It's all about him and manifesting that. People should see in you and me what Paul talked about. They ought to see marriages completely revolutionized, so countercultural to anything they witness in society. They ought to see parent-child relationships. They ought never see couples argue. No curse word ever to come forth. No anger manifested. Except for a righteous cause against injustice. The way God got angry in the Old Testament. Against injustice. See? They ought to see a life so completely revolutionized, they ask the question, why? What is it about those people? What do you have that I have no experience with? That's how our lives are to be lived. And by the way, you possess the power to do that. Okay? It resides in you. That power of that changed life is alive in you. And most of us have not tapped into resurrection power to live a life wholly dedicated to Christ. But we can manifest that kind of an expression, a church community. That's what people in our world are looking toward or ought to see in that kind of a community of truth. And when they get around a community like that, and what our society and our world is looking for, and there's nothing wrong in the postmodern world to say, we want to see truth change lives. You see, in the generations past, we knew truth. But in the 20th century, even having great scientific knowledge led to some cataclysmic things here on this earth. And some people took great science and totally abused it. And we ended up in some awful wars under the ruse of men whose names were like Adolf or Joseph. See? They want to see life change. and They want more than knowledge. And Paul would respond and say, knowledge puffs up. What we're looking for is wisdom. And you and I the Word of God teaches over and over and over. Get knowledge, but let it grow to understanding and ultimately manifest itself in wisdom. We ought to be a wise people in this world. Are we wise? We should be wise, not just smart. You do know the difference between knowledge and understanding and wisdom? Knowledge, this morning when I went outside, Jumped in my car. I was wearing just a shirt, didn't put my coat on. Got in the car, it said 40 degrees. 40 degrees says it's what? Actually, to a Minnesotan, it goes, Hey, Dad, I can still go swimming. Okay. <laughs> but it was 40 degrees. Not that bad, Dad. Okay. 40 degrees, you read that. 40 degrees says it's cold outside. That's knowledge. Read a thermometer. Understanding. 40 degrees, when you go outside, long exposure to that causes your immune system to be a little bit taxed. You could get a cold if you're exposed to germs. So I've learned about that temperature, but I've learned what it can do to a person. So that's understanding. Wisdom says if I'm going outside, I ought to put a coat on. Okay? And so the Word of God says don't just know doctrine and facts. Don't just know that in the millennium Jesus will rule and reign. So what? Even unbelievers can read that. They may not believe it, but they read it. It should make a difference to you and me. He will be Lord. Wisdom says He's Lord then in my life right now. And if He's going to change the world in the future when He's declared Lord, He should be changing my life and I should be submitting everything to Him today. In my marriage, my home, the way I act at work, according to Ephesians 6, I ought to be the best employee. I ought not to ever think of ducking out early. I ought to be the most honest. There should never, ever, ever be the falsification, ever, or even the fudging, ever, over an expense report. Never on the part of a Christian. Ever. It's uncalled for else I make everything about Jesus a lie, a mockery in their face. I will be the best citizen. I will be, and if, and if I can't obey, then I will suffer the consequences. I will always, though, obey my God even above man. Make sense? Sometimes it may cost a job, it may cost a life. That's called a martyrdom. But I will honor my God. And that's how our lives are to be lived before others in this world. As future kingdom dwellers and as those who know the Lord. Our apologetics. I'm going to read a couple of things and then we're going to close. Methodologically, I would like to suggest a more excellent way. Jesus said that when you find yourself a sheep among wolves, be innocent but shrewd. And this calls for a tactical approach even though there is real warfare going on, and we're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead. Our engagement should look more like diplomacy than combat. Consider with me the following. There are two critical elements of any encounter. In the military, we talked about what we call strategy, and we called tactics. Strategy involves seeing the big picture, one's positioning prior to actual engagement. In our case, Christianity is well positioned because we have the superior ideas. We have the best answer to life's most important questions. The whence, whether, and why. Where did I come from? Where am I going? And why am I here? Tactics, meanwhile, involve the actual details of engagement. Literally, the art of arranging. Maneuvering in the face of an enemy. enemy Deploying assets. Putting them into action to gain advantage. Often, a clever commander has the advantage of a superior opponent through deft, tactical maneuvering. And here is where we must give attention. You and I ought to learn to artfully manage the details of dialogue. This does not mean using tricks or slick ruses, but finding clever ways to exploit another person's bad thinking for the purpose of guiding them to truth. There are numerous ways to accomplish this. Gregory Kuckel suggests what he calls the Colombo tactic. Some of us who are old enough to remember that. It's the simplest device imaginable to stop a challenger in his tracks. Simply put, instead of making assertions, ask questions. If you hit a roadblock when witnessing ask a good question. Questions are basically interactive by nature, inviting others to participate. They're neutral, no preaching. More importantly, a carefully placed question shifts the burden of proof to another. In the day in which you live, in which people are attacking truth or dismissing truth, you and I need to learn how to talk with them. Simply then, if they don't want to believe truth, handing them a tract and saying, read this, they're just going to dismiss it but I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. When they say, I'm absolutely certain that a good God, if there was such a God, would not cause suffering and evil, or all religions are basically the same, you need to ask, in what way? When they have ideas, ask them how they came to that conclusion. Have you ever considered, and then talk about that, you and I have a story to tell to the nations when errors and shortcomings of a critic's views have been exposed, if he is at all a thinking person, okay, if you've dismissed and shot down or caused me to see that I don't have an argument and that my thinking is flawed, what is the true story? Folks, we have a story to tell. Notice, I believe that the best reason for believing that Christianity is true is Jesus. And the best reason for Jesus is Jesus himself. The Gospels are the best proof for the truth of the Christian faith. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip would reply, Come and see. Most people who are not Christians do not have enough knowledge of Jesus to reject him or to declare that Christianity is false or not worth believing. If people will just look, just read, and ponder the Gospels, they will be struck by what they find. And By the way, can I read, take about two or three minutes and read? I want to encourage you to read something from a book by a theologian by the name of John Stackhouse. He's written a book called Evangelical Futures. He says, Asking a non-Christian to spend time reading and pondering the Gospel of counts of Jesus is asking a great deal. Many Christians do less. One of the best articles and very disturbing is written by this Canadian theologian. By way of a brief summation, Stackhouse begins by asserting that a new dark age has advanced upon us and we'd better recognize and deal with it. He describes it as a strange dark age to be sure. It is still well illumined. Televisions at home, Glow all day. The computer screens glow at work in the offices. Instead of flickering golden candlelight thrown off by medieval tapers, our civilization is lit by the bluish light of the cathode ray tube or the LCD screen. And then he talks about the fact people do not read today. He even goes so far as to say, I simply wish they would read. I don't care if they even read trashy novels. Well, he doesn't use that word. He uses pulp fiction. At least when you read, you have to think. And he says, people do not read. Meaning they do not what? Think. Why read the book when you can do the what? See the movie. Okay? And he deals with that. And so, He says, if you read, you develop some skills. He then bemoans that first, many of us do not in fact read much or often. And second, there is reading and there is reading and then there is reading. And we tend to read only at the first two levels. The third level is deep reading, reading that that does not just use a book but converses with it, treating it as a companion. This is the reading that shapes minds and souls, reading that is truly of and in the spirit. He says poetry requires this kind of reading, and so does drama. And by the way, I do not know, in the college where I administered for the last few years, there's not one person on that campus, not one person on that Christian campus who is majoring in poetry and English. People don't major in poetry anymore. Why? How many of you write poetry in here? Many, Several of you. Praise God. Okay takes a lot of thinking, okay? He writes, people don't read and we forget how to read well or never learn. Indeed, one of the most shocking examples of this phenomena can be furnished immediately in any group of Christians. Produce a paragraph of Scripture. Ask each person to articulate just the main point of that paragraph in one sentence. Then stand back and watch the chaos. People cannot read with discipline, with attention, with submission to the text. They read for use or for entertainment. Here's what I think is interesting, or here's what it means to me, but not for real engagement with another mind. Here's what it says. And so the idea is today we need, and here's his charge, if you and I are going to go among people that we work with and live with and give them the Word of God as the answer, you and I need to be what? Students of the Word. We have nothing to say of truth if we don't know the truth ourselves to give them. Amen? And so I close out with this. And it does us absolutely no good to sit here and insist that a proposition such as Jesus is Lord is objectively true while at the same time we live our lives in such a way that this lordship remains completely invisible. If Christians feel compelled to claim that Jesus is Lord, then that lordship must be visible. God called the church into being to bear witness by its embodied life together that God has come to earth and dwelt among us, a mission that should not have left things the way they were. What will give our testimony authority will not be what we say is true. Rather, what will lend our testimony authority is that by the grace of God, you and I live in such a way that our lives are incomprehensible apart from this God. There's no way we can explain how you and I live apart from God. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. That's the challenge which we face as Christians and the one at which we are failing miserably. I suspect, for example, that my neighbors have no trouble at all making sense of my life quite apart from any conception of God whatsoever. As mentioned above, unless we are content to answer questions no one is posing, it seems to me the most urgent task of our church is to live in the world in such a way that the world is driven to ask us about the hope that you and I have. And I close with that.